Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. Learn more about Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us at 10 a.m. on Sundays at voxoc.com slash live and at the El Dorado Performing Arts Center. Good morning. Yep, we're all here. We're all here. Mom and dad. <laughs> hey, my mom and dad came. Hey, they showing their support. <laughs> Love that. Uh, well, hey, welcome to Vox. First time. Uh, we are a community that believes the Eucharist. This is the center and the focal point of why we gather. It's really the heartbeat of what we do, and uh, we'll probably spend the most time there. Um, and for those of you who aren't familiar with that, uh, some people call it communion. Uh, we really see is it the, the, the thing that brings everyone together, levels the playing field, and says that we all have access to Jesus. And so, uh, we have gluten-free communion on this side. We have regular communion here. We'll have some community pastors that would love to serve you in that way. Uh, as a form of worship, we are a culture that says it's about invitation and not coercion. So you are invited to worship however you want and however you feel most comfortable. For some people, they grew up in a tradition where they sat and listened. That's fine. For some people, they want to stand and you want to raise your hands. That's fine as well. Uh, you're welcome to worship how you want to worship. Um, but for us, it's about being invited to do that. Uh, and then lastly, our teaching team is uh, pretty diverse theologically. Uh, we think that makes us better and more rounded. Um, and so you'll hear different things and different ways that we teach it. And no, none of us believe we have the answers. We're simply giving a response to what we think we see and what we hear. And so we value questions. So if you have questions about messages or questions about the church, feel free to ask those questions via text message uh, and we'll get back to you. As a matter of fact, we have some that we'll answer in a little bit. So, Oh yeah, looking forward to those. Got some good ones today. Yep. Uh, we got a couple announcements. Uh, we'll do uh, right quick here. Uh, let's put up the uh, workshops for uh, reading scripture. Oh, yeah, let's do this one. So, uh, Box Terror Workshop, our next one here is March. Um, ooh, this date has changed, my friends. I need to change this slide. It's March 11th. So, it's actually going to be on Monday night, not the regular Tuesday. Uh, Carrie's schedule changed, so uh, Monday was going to be the night. So, uh, sign up for that. That's Free Silencing the Lies of the Inner Voice. Kind of a long title, but um, it's kind of where we arrived with uh, talking to Carrie a lot about. What um, what this was going to be about, and a lot of it is um, if you've been through like certain forms of trauma and crisis in your life, you can easily begin to believe things that you tell yourself about what the world looks like, what you look like in the world in its own context. And we need to learn how to listen to that. We need to learn how to understand what's actually being a truth that's being told and what's actually being dismissive of the truth that's being told to ourselves. And so um, that's very much of an inward-looking process of what we're hearing and what we know about um, what needs to uh, kind of move out. And so that's. That's kind of add a little more language to that title so it doesn't sound too weird and kooky, but that's what that's about. Um, great. Uh, yeah, reading scripture, spiritual practice workshop. Tell Maybe share a little bit how the last one went and then yeah, like, why yeah, this yeah. is going to be cool. So we just, once a month, we want to hold workshops where we kind of talk through and have open dialogue about different spiritual practices because spiritual formation is what we want to be, be doing and engaging in. And so the last one was on prayer and we had about, uh, I think, 25 people showed up and it was a great conversation. Lots and lots of uh, breakthroughs, I think, for some people um, and so I encourage you to come. This next one will be about scripture reading and how do we read scripture? Uh, it won't be like a Bible study thing. It's more about how do we how do we engage it in a form of spiritual practice. So that's kind of the, the premise of it. Nice, nice, cool. And then our uh, there we go. Our church and culture workshop for this month is actually going to be on spiritual abuse. So um, yeah, pretty light, pretty light. 
Um, yeah, we've, uh, I, I've spent a lot of time talking about this um, with Mike on the Vox podcast. Um, to be honest, many many of us on staff have gone through a number of different forms of this in different ways. And um, this is, again, like a lot of these kinds of topics is us being willing to have the dialogue about these things. Many of you that we have met have come from very dynamic and very diverse backgrounds of what their experience have been in the church. Many of you have worked on staffs at churches and have had um, you know poor circumstances happen to you as well. And so really what this is is a way to have a dialogue about, A, defining it understanding what it really looks like, being able to call out, you know, for folks who do want to share, ask questions about something, being able to call out and say, like, yeah, that actually was an inappropriate use of power or an inappropriate, you know, uh, way of relating with you in the context of what is happening in the church. And so it's it's a little bit of dialogue on orientation about it, um, but then just some space to air out of, like, what do, what do, how do we make sure that we're accountable for that as well, you know, because we're human and we're not perfect, and this isn't going to be the most perfect version of church you ever see either. Like, we, we're going to make mistakes and uh, we've said from the beginning, like, ultimately, we, at some point in time, we will disappoint you. Like, you know, <laughs> be ready for that at one point in like time. This, this, this may not work. Yeah, like us doing these announcements is not the most exciting <laughs> thing. We're already disappointed. Um, so, anyhow, that's just our way yeah. of being honest. And Yeah. And to that point, I think some, for some people, it's putting language to what they've experienced. Yeah. And some people didn't know that that was actually abuse. Um, right. So, being able to put language and categorize it is a good thing and a helpful thing. So yep. Absolutely. So, yep. these are all free workshops. They're right after our gatherings on Sunday. So, February 17th, 1145. Um, we'll be doing that over in the PE room. So, uh, those are our announcements. We got a handful of questions, so we're going to bang yep. those out. Yeah. One person, I think, asked uh, three really good questions, so we're going to take some time to answer those. All right. If you want, throw those up. All right. Question one. Uh, we love that the communion Eucharist is taken, away, uh, taken every week and the openness it is offered to all, <clears throat> although we notice that the people offering the communion always say to us that this is the body of Christ broken for you and this is the blood of Christ, etc. and it seems uh, like they're looking for a response. I think that's the... We were wondering if there's a response we should give. I usually just nod yes or say thank you, which seems awkward and strange to me. I love uh, you, Ronnie. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so let me answer that one. Um, yes, I didn't really think about it being awkward until I read your question. <laughs> and I can agree that if you don't know what's going on, it can feel a little awkward. I think yes and thank you is a polite way of just responding. Um, you could say amen which is an agreement of this is what they're saying, this is what their statement, um, you don't have to say anything. That's kind of the beauty of it. So I don't think there's any real like programmatic way of uh, responding to that. So thank you for asking the question because it's an honest question. Um, so also there were a few weeks uh, where the taking of the Eucharist was not mentioned or explained. For me, this is not a problem, but for a few people we brought with us to visit, it was confusing since they come from more structured traditions. Is that it? Okay, so well, let me answer this this one way. Uh, what a great opportunity for you to engage dialogue with your friend. <laughs> right? Uh, you get to bring them and you get to engage in conversation and what that actually means. And so I think that's a good thing. Uh, we try our best to try to uh, explain things, obviously through the Q&A and, and even just the beginning part of introing of our church and our culture. We try, um, but that being said, there's a lot of nuance and there's a lot of things that are layered and so we can only do so much. But we try as best we can to explain communion. Um, and you're right, there's a lot of um, insider baseball, insider, you know, language that Christian these people use. And so uh, we try our best to eliminate that and explain it when we can. But call us on it. If you hear something, you're like, what is that? Send a question and we'll, we'll do our best to explain it. So, Awesome. All right, number two, what steps has Vox Community taken to intentionally be more multicultural, multi-ethnic, and socioeconomically diverse? Um, 
Great question. Um, I was immediately uh, triggered uh, <laughs> when this question came up uh, for a number of reasons. But for one, I'll share this. I have a very legitimate answer to this. Um, and then a few considerations and sensitivities to consider. Um, I can tell you one that, um, you know, the hard part is sometimes, you know, what ethnicity is this question coming from kind of orients them what you're actually looking for, right? So that's kind of also part of it. Um, I would assume in most of my experiences, most of these questions are typically being asked by a middle, um, like, uh, middle class white person. Now, I'm half white, so I can say that. So, but I'm also, well, no, technically, I'm still low income. Orange <laughs> County, thank God. Um, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> because we come from a lot of churches where that intentional thing is done, right? Like you get, you, get, you grow to a church of 2,000, 3,000 people, and then you realize the homogeneity in the room, and then you start to ask the question like, well, why don't we look more diverse, or why doesn't it look this way, or why doesn't it look that? Doesn't the Bible look like it's really diverse? It's like, actually, it was probably a lot of Jews <laughs> in, yeah. in, in the Middle East going to the same church, right? right. No one was being like, well, where's all the black Jews? <laughs> you know, so it's just, the thing is about like our own, our own culture, this is Orange County, okay? So if we want to talk about diversity, you know, 1% of Orange County is black. Um, like 15% is Hispanic. Another like 10 or 12 is like, you know, uh, Asian, you know, just kind of oriental. Lumped, lumped. Yeah. We're all lumped together. Um, so, I mean, it's kind of with the, the most reasonable thing to ask any kind of, you know, church like this is, does the church actually reflect what the community looks like? And so it's not that, you know, we don't intentionally, we don't see an agenda where we need to be multicultural. Our agenda is to serve whoever walks through that door. Like that's the most important thing for us. So it's because you kind of end up in this trapping of making these token things of like, oh, we want to look diverse. It's important that the church looks diverse. Like that's more important than just looking like what the community actually looks like. And so that's where I'm like, I'm not, we're not going to make these intentional steps to kind of look more diverse. We're not really concerned with how we look. We're far more concerned with who's in the room mm -hmm. and who we're here to serve and what that actually looks like. Um, I can tell you though that Ronnie and I are both Filipino. David is Hispanic and Cece is Filipino on our staff. And and um, two or three other people are white. So our, our staff is actually split 50-50 if, if we want to talk about that diversity. Now, the socioeconomical thing is interesting, right? Because we, um, we did a live podcast uh, for the Vox podcast early on when we first started Vox Community. And we had a lady who'd been listening to that podcast for a long time. I think she said she was from Torrance or Long Beach or somewhere up from that area. And she came here and she was like, this was completely different than what I imagined it would be like. She's like, it was way too neat, way too clean and everything else. And I was actually super uncomfortable. So there is kind of this thing to consider, especially like we have this you know, scenario. We have a lot of other big church scenarios we've come from. And yeah, it's even think of like your own home. Like a lot of times in hospitality, and this is kind of a Jesus y thing, so it's interesting that I just want to preach this real fast. So, like when you look at Zacchaeus' story, I think it's so fascinating that Jesus says, like, I want to come to your house. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like what we see, like, it's almost the pious thing when the Pharisees are, are making tables for everybody else. It's mm -hmm. like, I'm the most hospitable person, therefore let me let you come to me and I will feed you. They feed out of their own comfort rather than Jesus stepping into a place that would be uncomfortable for that person because like, wait, Jesus is coming to my mm -hmm. house? Well, now what am I supposed to do? I'm not worthy for him to mm -hmm. walk in my house, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, a lot of times, like, I think, I mean, I, and I'm, I'm totally guilty of this too. That's why this last year I had kind of this epiphany of if I spend a lot more time making my own home clean and wonderful and beautiful, 
How uncomfortable is that for someone on the lower income class to walk into a squeaky clean home where for them, they're like, well, my house doesn't look like this. This is actually uncomfortable for me. Mm-hmm. It seems a lot more beautiful for me to say, let me come to your home. Mm-hmm. Let me serve you where you're at. You know, like, let me bring you food. You don't have to do anything. You just get to stay home. Now, obviously, there's a lot of discomforts that we have to weigh here. But I, I say this all because I think that that is somewhat of a similar experience when we look at church environments and what that feels like. So, yeah, like, is it, would it feel uncomfortable for, um, you know, I don't know, the homeless class to walk into a room? like this yeah they feel outrageously out of place versus if they walked into you know a downtown like urban center that looks as filthy inside as it does on the outside probably feel a lot more comfortable for them walking in so yeah like this type of room serves the local community of what the community actually looks like and so it's kind of and those are tensions that and i'm saying i say all that because that's just a sensitivity and attention like we have to kind of figure that out how valuable is that and what other values are, are more important and so um we're aware of those things it's good is that a good answer that's good cool yeah. sound good all right, question number three. Uh, what is Vox Community's stance on people accepting Christ? Uh, specifically, I mean the tradition of having people walk, come down to the front and saying a prayer in front of everyone. Uh, okay, so this one is, a, is an interesting question. It's a little bit tiered, a little multi-layered. Uh, the first one is we, you'll, you'll notice that we don't do that. As a part of our, our gathering, we don't do it. Uh, I think it comes from a, uh, a confession. Uh, Many, many, many years ago, uh, a confession was a powerful outward symbol of identification. Um, a lot of Christians early on did this um, because they needed to. I think in the culture that they were in, they needed to solidify uh, and reiterate what it is that they believed, and it was a way of identifying their uh, who they were and what they believed. I think that was powerful. And for many, many years, there's been confessions. You'll hear different confessions and stuff if you look through church history. I think what has happened recently in the last you know 100 years or so and this is where I get a little bit triggered, is that um, accepting Christ has become sort of uh, monetized, and it's become a way of getting people to come to your church uh, and making your numbers look good, like you're growing because you got people accepting Christ. And so really there was like this subtle ulterior motive of actually getting people to raise their hands and to come forward. And, and it was like, you know, that, I think that becomes really abusive. Uh, and, and being a part of a culture like that for a few, for many years, uh, I saw the dark side of it. I saw the, the constant repeat of people doing it and then it was like well what does that mean anymore if, if you just keep raising your hand and walking forward what does that mean anymore what does that mean for you do you even understand what you're doing and uh and, how, and maybe it's maybe it's meant to be something that's more of a dialogue and more of a journey and more of a conversation than simply just raising your hand with your heads bowed and every eyes closed and uh so i think um what's happened recently is it's become a little bit of a sort of a commercial thing um and so we we kind of have st- straight away from it we, we value the conversation within the community so if somebody wants to un- ask the question about hey, how do I how do I ex- actually enter into a relationship with Jesus, I think that's the conversation that we want to have. Um, we want to dig deeper into what that means because that person's obviously going to have questions about what does it mean to follow Jesus. And so um, yeah, uh, I think the there's I wouldn't say there's nothing wrong with it. Sure, you can do it. I think confessions are powerful. We just choose not to do it here because of some of what's attached to it. Um, and so yeah, I don't I, I think yeah that's fair, right? Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. Thanks, man. I'm out. All right. Thanks, guys. If you have more questions about that, feel free to ask. I'd love to answer them. If you want to have dialogue about them, great. So we're going to hear uh, a little bit of message, and then we're going to do some worship and some, uh, some communion. So... 
This morning, I wanted to talk about the story of Jonah. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Jonah, uh, but Jonah is this, this, this small book, only five chapters in the Old Testament. Uh, Jonah is considered a minor prophet, not that he was small or minor. Uh, it's just that when they categorized him in the canon, there was the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then there was the minor prophets like Malachi, Jonah, all those people. So my encouragement to you this morning is as you go home, not today, because I know some people are going to do some things later on today. I'm not sure what, but you're going to watch something and you're going to be preoccupied. But later, open your Bible and read through Jonah. And hopefully this morning, after you hear what I have to say, you'll see it with different eyes. You'll approach it in a different way. Because if I was to tell you a story about a man who was a carpenter who carved himself a little puppet, and then he wanted this puppet to become a real boy. And then if I told you that this little puppet actually became a real boy, and then had this problem with lying, and because he lied, his nose grew, and then he ended up inside of a whale. If I told you this story, you all would laugh, right? You all would go, oh, I know what he's talking about. He's talking about Pinocchio, right? And, and you wouldn't think about it. you just go, okay. But, you know, we could look at Pinocchio, and we could sort of dissect Pinocchio and take out the literary criticisms of it. We could probably say that there's some sort of moral story to it about not lying. Uh, maybe I've, I've read some things on Pinocchio that, that maybe it was, a, it was an indictment on the working class culture uh, in Italy where the writer was from, right? So there's lots of ways that we can dissect it. But we can look at the story and go, okay, there's a meaning or a purpose behind it, right? The same is true about stories in scripture, much like this one in Jonah. Uh, effectively, depending on how you read it and what your understanding of is of that, I think it changes your perspective greatly. Uh, this is a story about a prophet named Jonah and what happens when someone who is supposed to be the representation of God loses all sight of that purpose. That's really the heartbeat of this story, and we're going to dig into that a little bit more. So let me start by reading just a small uh, passage in the beginning of Jonah chapter 1, and then we'll start. So it's Jonah chapter 1. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. <clears throat> Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it, because I have seen how wicked its people are. So you're getting this idea. The, the, the author is telling you something about uh, the culture and the people around. But Jonah, he got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. Okay? It's kind of funny. He went down to the port of Joppa, where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. Tarshish is uh, essentially at this time and this culture was like the farthest end of the world you could possibly go. So, right? If you're trying to get away from God, Tarshish is where you want to go. Right? It's like, if you want to get away from God here, you go to Bakersfield. I'm just kidding. Okay, so... <laughs> Sorry if you're from Bakersfield. I'm just joking. Um, <clears throat> he bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. Okay, so uh, hopefully today you'll walk away with a different perspective on Jonah. I love this book because of the message that it gives. So hopefully we'll uncover that this morning. So before we start, let's pray, and then we'll get, we'll get going. Uh, God, thank you for this time. Thank you for a chance to gather. Thank you for the, the weather, although um, I know it's been hard for, for many across this country, and uh, people have died, uh, and it's, uh, it's difficult. And so we pray for those people who've been affected in this way, in a negative way. We pray uh, for this area, our land, that we um, would get the water that we need to help us in this drought. Um, we are grateful that you bring the rain, but you also bring the sunshine. And so we're grateful for that. We, um, we pray that you would be with us this morning. Um, open our hearts, open our minds to hear you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so 
So um, a little bit of background story for me. Uh, my uh, degree, my undergrad degree is in biology, wildlife biology specifically. I have a minor in botany, which is plants. I'm telling you all this just to kind of get the point across that uh, I have, my mind sort of works in a way that's very skeptical and very scientific. Um, I have to see things a certain way for them to make sense. I didn't grow up as a Christian, so I came to Christ a lot later in life. Um, and so you can imagine when I heard the story of Jonah, I, I was a little bit skeptical, right? Right? Like, I mean, okay, so this guy gets swallowed by a whale and he's inside of a whale for three days and then he gets spit out, right? And he lives. Okay, lots of questions, right? Lots of questions. Like, first of all, where was he at? Was he in the stomach? Because if he's in the stomach, how does he get oxygen, right? Because I can understand if he was maybe in the lungs. Because then, you know, it was breathing in air, and then he was somehow pulling. But, you know, all the different questions start coming out. But in the tradition that I, that I, that I found Christ in, that I came up in, you, no, 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 you don't ask those questions. No, 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 this is, this is factual, historical evidence. We can prove it. And there was like crazy outlandish stories about people who were trapped in whales, and they came to life after three days. And so, you know, there's all this stuff. But for me, I'm going, I don't know. And then subsequently what happens is that Jonah becomes about this whale. The story of Jonah gets whittled down to be about this guy who doesn't want to do what God tells him to do, jumps in the water, and then he's swallowed by a whale and he's spit up. That, that's literally what Jonah became to me, and I missed the point. It's a po- problematic interpretation. Like many things in Scripture depending on how we interpret them, depending on how we read them, we can make some pretty wild assumptions and start building theology, start building ideas, and start building narratives that don't actually fit what was meant, which is why we see a lot of some of the abuses that we see today, because people pulling text out and, and misreading it and misunderstanding it and then applying it in different ways. Like I said, you become fixated about the whale, we miss the point of the story, and then we miss it, there's a misunderstanding about who the main character is. So my hope this morning is that we do a little bit of history and we, we talk a little bit about literature and then we can kind of change our perspective and change our mind in the way that we see it. So what if for a second, just suspend, suspend this for a second, what if, what if the genre the genre, the literary genre of Jonah is actually satire, right? You guys have read satire. Anybody ever see on your Facebook the Babylon Bee? You guys ever read that? Hilarious, right? That stuff is hilarious for so many reasons. But, but you, when you read it, you understand that they're being satirical, right? Like you understand that they're kind of poking fun. It's like almost parody a little bit of, of sort of the culture, right? And I think that's important because sometimes we can take ourselves too seriously, yeah? And so we need to laugh a little bit. And so, you know, satire is actually a genre in the Bible. At the time of the writing, people understood this genre. People wrote in satire. So what if the whale is more symbolic as opposed to literal? What if the point of the story isn't about a prophet or Nineveh or a whale? What if there's something deeper in the story? What if the main character in the story is actually God? Think about that for a second. Take what you knew or what you heard about Jonah, and now just think about that for a second. What if? What if all these things are true? Now, I'm not here to convince you uh, of what this story is. You'll have to come to your own conclusions. That's why I said, you go read it. Go read it for yourself. Go pick up some Bible dictionaries if you want. There's plenty of resources online. Go look at the scholarship and see what you see. But for me, if you just spend that for a second, look at the Bible and look at Jonah in this way, I think you'll come up with something different. So let me give you some background. What is a prophet? 
right? Most people, when you hear the word prophet, they automatically assume, oh, this person tells the future, right? We, somebody asked this question a couple weeks ago um, about Ezekiel. So when you hear prophet, I want to change your mind for a second. When you hear the word prophet in the scriptures, do not think of somebody who tells the future. That is not their primary goal. Remember that when God started a relationship with his people, he he instituted a covenant, right? A covenant was an agreement. It was an agreement that he had with his people. That's how God deals with his people. Even today, he deals with his people in covenant relationships. That covenant relationship had rules and expectations, and there was also repercussions for not meeting those. So he had somebody to come and mitigate those, those, uh, those consequences, essentially. We call those people prophets. They're the covenant enforcers. In other words, they were the ones to remind the people about the contract, about the covenant that they made with God. Hey, you're missing it. You remember Jeremiah, the prophet? Some of you have read and familiar with Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet who agonized over the fact that these people could not understand what they were doing. And he over and over and over again tried to remind them, hey, remember the covenant. Remember who you are. Remember your God. Over and over again. So first and foremost, a prophet is a covenant enforcer. And at the time uh, of this story, Israel is a divided kingdom, split up into two, the north and the south. Uh, And so because they're a divided kingdom, you can imagine lots of turmoil, lots of things going on in the nation. Now, at this time, it's also Israel has been post-exile from Assyria, the Assyrian nation. You'll remember, or maybe not, so I'm not going to speak like you know, but Israel was captured and conquered many times, and they were exiled, essentially moved out of their land uh, with the Babylonians, and in this story, it's the Assyrian nation. And so they're a divided kingdom. The Assyrian nation is sort of on the decline. It's dwindling, um, and so Jonah is now the prophet at this time. Assyria once ruled them, once conquered them, uh, and Nineveh, the city that you hear about, is a city inside of Assyria. So take that historical background, take that historical context for a second. If you are an Israelite, what sort of feelings do you have about the Babylonians? What sort of feelings do you have about the Assyrians, right? Some people probably hated them. You conquered us, you destroyed us, you pushed us out of our land, and now we're trying to fight to come back to what our land that was a promise to us. So here, Jonah is the prophet. He's the one who's the spokesperson for God. He's the one who comes to the people to remind them about who God is and about the covenant that God speaks uh, with them. So prophets, they see God work right? Imagine if you're a prophet, you go and tell a king, hey, this is wrong. You shouldn't be doing this. The king repents. God gives blessing. You're seeing this. This is your job. You're actually witnessing God do miraculous things. So what is the, what is the author of Jonah doing? Look at the text again. But Jonah got up and went to the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. Do you see now? Do you see now the satire? Do you see now that this, this just reads like a satire? Like the, the author is going, this is the silliness of Jonah and what he tried to do. He went down to the port of Joppa where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He uses Tarshish, which everybody knew at the time is like the farthest, it'd be like me going, he went down to go to Bakersfield and you all would laugh, right? Because you get it. You get what I'm trying to say. He bought a ticket and he went on board hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. Okay, Take away the literal reading and now look at it. You see what the author is trying to do. He's inviting you into a story. He's poking fun at Jonah. He's poking fun at the culture. He's poking fun at Israel a little bit and going, hey, let me show you a little bit. Let me hold up a mirror to you and show you a little bit of how you're acting. So why did Jonah do this? Why did Jonah decide to run away? Are you ready for it? Because he's a racist, 
nationalistic xenophobe. Right? A hush falls over the crowd. What? Can you say that? Yeah, absolutely. Because he hates the Ninevites. He hates the Assyrians. They worship other gods. There's no way, no way that God would ever want to bless them because he's only blessing Israel. Right? Is that pertinent for today? Hmm, I don't know. Uh, so you see how, like, you can get so wrapped up in, in your, your identity and your culture that you can miss your purpose that God gives you. But see, the author is trying to reveal that to his readers. And the readers of Jonah would have understood this. They would have got the point right away. They would have known, okay, this author's bringing my attention to something. The, the ridiculousness of Jonah trying to escape to the end of the earth. The ridiculousness of Jonah trying to escape God's presence. It's not unusual for people to find identity rooted in their nation, to see their nation's success as God's blessing on them and a curse to others. And what usually follows, what typically follows throughout a historical pattern, is there a lack of compassion and intolerance for others outside of their own country. Hmm. A couple thousand years ago, right? Eighth century BC. And we see that people are people, right? We have these reoccurring patterns. And so the author is trying to remind Israel, hey, take a look at yourself for a second. And he's using Jonah, the prophet, God's spokesperson, the person who sees God work. And now he's trying to avoid doing what God has asked him to do. So much so that Jonah would rather drown in the ocean than help foreigners on a boat. See, so what happens is Jonah gets on this boat uh, and then they're sailing away and then God causes a storm to happen and Jonah and everyone is like, what's going on? And Jonah knows what's happened because Jonah's quiet. You know, everyone's like freaking out and the one person who's not freaking out, they're like, what did you do? You know, and Jonah's like, it's me, it's all me. Just throw me overboard. Rather than have God stop the storm because he's with these foreigners, he just was like, I'd rather die. Just, just throw me overboard. And so they throw him overboard, right? And so Jonah... What Jonah wants for the people outside of his own culture, his own nation, is them to be doomed for their actions. He wants them to suffer the consequences of what they've done. He wants nothing more, right? Because remember, they were conquered people, and they're, they're different than them. They worship a different God. They're different. They look different than us. They're not like us. And so Jonah has this contempt. So the author then tells us in a way that only satire can, that Jonah gets what he wants. Jonah gets what he wants. He gets swallowed by a fish. Goes in the water, and says he didn't even try. If you read the story, it reads like Jonah fell in the water and didn't even try to swim. Like he just, like a rock, floated to the bottom, and God was like, oh, no, 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 not for you. And then a whale, it says that a whale was appointed for him, right? The story is like God brings a whale, it grabs Jonah, and now he's in the belly of this whale. So, the author is showing us irony, right? Here's a spokesperson for God who refuses to show mercy and compassion of that God towards others. Do you see now? If you're reading Jonah literally, you might be missing some of the major points that the author is trying to convey to his readers, right? Now, a lot of authors speculate there's lots of scholarship on Jonah and what it actually means. And one literary thing is that, you know, what does the whale have to do with the story? Well, something about anger and contempt. If you've ever struggled with anger and contempt or hatred, isn't it consuming? It's pretty consuming. And so here's Jonah, a prophet, who's consumed with anger and contempt for the Ninevites. And it's as if his own anger and his own contempt swallows him whole. 
And he sits there because he's stubborn. For three days, says the story, three days. He's, he's stubborn. He doesn't get it. Like in the first try, he didn't understand, okay, something's going on here. Jonah gets what he wants. Now, chapter two, what does Jonah do? Now he's swallowed by a whale. He's inside the whale. Look what it says in Jonah chapter two, starting verse one. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God from inside the fish. This is ironic. I love it. He said, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble, and he answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead. O Lord, you heard me. You threw me into the ocean depths, and I sank down to the heart of the sea. The mighty waters engulfed me. I was buried beneath your wild and stormy waves. Then I said, O Lord, you have driven me from your presence, yet I will look once more towards your holy temple. Do you see it? Here's a guy who does not want to tell Nineveh about the mercy and justice and compassion that God has. He's angry, he's contempt-filled. Then he drowns himself, gets swallowed by a fish, gets consumed by his own anger, his own contempt, and then he asks God for mercy and compassion, right? Again, what's the author trying to convey to us? The irony here, right? He begs for mercy, he begs for compassion, the same mercy, the same compassion he does not want to show for Nineveh. Now, this may be what the, the author has in mind, but for you, maybe you've noticed anger and rage consuming for you. So maybe this is a moment for all of us to stop and think, what are the things that consume me? What are the parts of my life that maybe I'm blind to? Maybe I'm missing? Maybe I need a mirror held up to me so that I can see my blind spots. The story in Jonah is remarkable if you let it. Sit and reflect on that for a second. What are your own prejudices? What are the things you hold on so tightly to that maybe you need to release? What do you find identity in? For Jonah, his identity is wrapped in his nationalistic pride. We are the chosen people. We are Israel. God blesses us, not you. This is dangerous, dangerous territory. So Jonah is spared nonetheless. Jonah chapter three, moving on. We're moving quickly through Jonah. This is why I want you to go ahead and read it on your own because I can't do all of it. Jonah chapter three, verse one. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. He said, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, deliver the message that I have given to you. Now he's saying, do your job, okay? You know what you're supposed to do, go do your job. This time, Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and he went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. The people of Nineveh believed God's message and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. Get this line. When God saw what they had done and how they put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. That's an interesting passage, right? God changed his mind. So is God omnipotent? Is God all-powerful? He changed his mind. What do you do with that, right? There's some theological questions that arise from that. Uh, we talked about this in our, in our, um, in our prayer uh, workshop a couple weeks ago. Um, what is prayer? Does prayer even work? Does it matter? Is it better to just send good vibes, right? Because honestly, what does prayer do? Well, if you believe fundamentally that prayer is a platform that has been given by God to have a say in what God is doing, to work with God in the world, then, then maybe, just maybe, we can see that God could change his mind. It happened in, in Genesis, right? It was Moses 
who went up on the mountain and told God, you can't kill these people. They're your people. You can't kill them. And God changed his mind. Now, it's a theological thought, right? If God changes his mind, does it make him less powerful? Or does it make him more powerful? That he can change his mind and still achieve the ends. I don't know. You have to think about it. But it gets better. Just wait. In Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. So this, so the fact that Nineveh changed their minds, repented of the mercy and the compassion of God, the change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. Oh, Jonah. Oh, Jonah. He complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, right? Didn't I say you would do this? This is why I ran to Tarshish. I knew that you are merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now. <laughs> that is hilarious, right? Come on. He's like, I knew, you were I knew you were merciful. I knew you were compassionate. I knew that you wouldn't kill them. Just kill me. Okay, Jonah, really? Lord, I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? I love God's response, right? Are, is it, do you get the right to be angry about this? Uh, there's a, there's a, a biblical term we have for this called theodicy, where uh, we get to just talk about what God thinks and what God decides to do, right? And who, who, who gets the right? So jo Jonah is having this moment with God. He's frustrated. He's so prideful. He's so arrogant. He's so filled with anger, rage, and contempt that he can't see the blindness in his own perspective. Thank God none of us are like that. Right? So we can look at Jonah and laugh, but the author is inviting us into a story about ourselves. See, if you start at the Bible with a very human perspective, and you understand that it's humans interacting with God, you see yourself in it. You can see how, oh my gosh, we're not so far removed from that, right? We have our own nationalistic pride. We have our own anger and our own rage against people who are not like us. I know I do, and I struggle with that. This is the tension that the author of Jonah is calling us into. So ultimately, the story ends with Jonah the prophet being stubborn and God being merciful towards Nineveh, and meanwhile, Jonah gets exactly what Jonah wants. So how do we make sense of all this? So what does this mean for us today? If we take this story, we look at it with this perspective, we look at it with these eyes, what does it mean for us? Well, a prophet's role was to be a spokesperson on behalf of God. They were to remind those faithful followers of their commitment to God. They represented God, a God who was, as Jonah said, I knew that you were merciful and a compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You see, the main character of Jonah is not Jonah. The main character of Jonah is not a whale. The main character of Jonah is not Nineveh or the Ninevites. The main character of the story is God. It is God who is compassionate and merciful and just and kind. And Jonah is to be a spokesperson for God. Today, in 2019, as Christ followers, we have become the spokespeople. We have become the signposts, if you will, to point back to who God is, to remind those around us the God that we serve, the God that we love. And so if that God that we serve and that God that we love doesn't look anything like merciful and compassionate and love and generous, then we have to ask ourselves the question, where are we? Right? 
If we're so wrapped up in our political agenda, if we're so wrapped up in our own thinking and our own way of doing something, and it doesn't look like compassion and mercy and goodness, oh man, we're missing something. Because we are the spokespeople. The church collectively should be a signpost to what God is like. Because Jesus was a representation in human form of what God is like. And I love this. Unfailing love. Unfailing love. It gets me when, when I hear some Christian traditions so wrapped up in condemnation and anger, and I go, what, what happened? Where, where, did you, where did you miss who God is? Why did all those things, judgment and condemnation and all that other stuff, why did that take precedent over compassion and mercy? and unfailing love. This is when Christians become hateful, they become cruel, intolerant, lacking compassion. This isn't what the world needs to see. This isn't who God wants his representation to be. We are to show the mercy and the love of God to the people around us. So think about that for a second. Take the story of Jonah as you've known it to be about a whale and man gets swallowed, to see that it's really about a stubborn, racist, xenophobic, nationalistic prophet who misses the point, who gets so wrapped up in his own identity, he misses what God is like. That's a story that I preach today, right? That'll speak to all of us today. What do we do with that? How do we become a people not like Jonah, right? It's funny because the story gets more ironic. I can't go through all of it, but if you read and finish Jonah, he's still just stubborn. And he gets so mad that he goes and sits under a tree and he just pouts. And he's like, I, I don't want to do this. And then God causes the plant to wither and then you know, the sun beats on Jonah. And it's like, he gets exactly what he wants, right? He doesn't want God to be merciful and so it doesn't happen to him. And it's like, the story is so great. It's a great satire, but it's a way to hold up a mirror to us and show us, hey, are you representing God in who he's actually like? God, thank you for uh, the story. Thank you that um, uh, it speaks to us today, even uh, millennia later, that it actually reflects what we are experiencing in our culture, in our day, and help us to be more loving, help us to be more, more kind, more compassionate. Help us to, to, to get a taste of unfailing love in our own life so that we can extend unfailing love to other people, to the people around us. Uh, help us in our moments of blindness and weakness when we're angry and we're filled with contempt. Remind us of the story of Jonah. Remind us of the way of the, the folly of the prophet who, who missed his, his point, who missed what he was supposed to do. Now we're thankful for today. Help us to be more like you. Help us to love your people more and more. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So together, we are going to uh, spend some time around the Eucharist, the gathering. Uh, this is a time that we feel uh, Jesus set up and appointed that everybody could come and have access to Jesus. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you come from, you have access. You get to come and partake. When you break bread with somebody, when you share a meal together, it's an intimate moment. And this is what this represents for us. That is a community, we're gathering together and we're sharing this moment. So everybody has access, everybody's welcome. We have gluten-free on this side. Uh, we have the normal stuff over here. We have some here down in the front too for those of you who are in the front rows, if you'd like. Uh, our community pastors are gonna serve you. Uh, what should you say in response? Whatever you want. You can say thank you, you can say amen, 
there's no real way to do it. You can just take it, and if you want to take it with friends or whatever, you want to go sit in a corner and pray together, you can do that. This is your time and space. The band's going to play some songs, and then uh, we'll wrap up. But this is your time. Go ahead. All right. Well, thanks for coming, guys. Hope you have a great morning. Whatever your plans are, whatever you're doing, I hope it's filled uh, with fun and love and family and, uh, and grace. So we're, uh, we're excited today. Who are we going for? Nope. There it is. Rams. That's right. That's it. Sadly, it doesn't, sadly, it doesn't look good. But uh, hey, go in God's grace. We'll see you guys next week. Our junior hires are serving donuts. So make sure you say thank you to them. And then we'll see you guys out there. All right. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash voxcommunity. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com slash participate.